The UN's latest report on global hunger shows we're moving backwards. At least 828 million people went hungry one way or another on a daily basis last year. The prices of wheat and other crops have increased exponentially. And People's purchasing power is diminishing. They're getting poorer. Therefore, they eat less. So we are in a situation which I think uh, there is no other better term than to call it a crisis. We've found ourselves living in a global food crisis. It's likely you're already feeling the impact of the crisis, whether that's seeing higher food prices during your weekly shop or finding limited supplies in the supermarket. Everything has gone up. Prices have skyrocketed. With regard to food shortage, yes, we did talk about food shortages, and it's going to be real. We're in the middle of a climate crisis, and yet we somehow need to feed a growing population at the same time. This cricket salad could be the key to solving world food shortages. They say it tastes like chicken. I've always loved anything with black ants because they have such a unique lemon pepper zest flavor. The end result is snacks. Whole roasted crickets or protein powder for bars and granola. It's a small step towards a big movement. Which is exciting... Independent journalism in 2023 is a bit complicated. There are thousands of stories floating around, and it's hard to decide which deserve the most attention. Here at Facts Matter, we've been spending a lot of time covering the global food crisis. Maybe you've heard of it. Good evening. This right here is an American supermarket store shelf. Food prices are skyrocketing in grocery stores around the world. And if you listen to world leaders, they'll tell you it's due to climate change. And their solution might surprise you. There are 1,900 edible insect species on the planet. According to the United Nations, this might actually be your future dinner. Let me explain. The people in charge of some of the most powerful organizations on the planet have determined that agriculture, specifically animal agriculture, is to blame for global warming. And global warming is to blame for the high prices of food as well as food shortages. And so, by switching our diets from beef, chicken, and pork, to crickets, ants, and mealworms, we'll be able to stop temperatures from rising, lower the price of food, and possibly to even save the planet. However, on this show, we've spent a lot of time speaking with the food providers, aka the farmers. John, thank you so much for joining us. And their story is very different. Their story suggests that these high food prices and these food shortages have little to do with global warming, but instead, They are the direct result of an environmental policy that was conceived over 30 years ago. The gentlewoman from California is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, The Earth Summit Environmental Leadership Act, as this is known, presents us with an opportunity to follow up on the important work of the Earth Summit to develop its blueprint, Agenda 21, for global environmental action. Agenda 21 was meant to be the agenda for the 21st century. 
very comprehensive document if you read it. We're, we're talking hundreds of pages governing really every facet of life, everything from education to land use policy to economics to law. Every area of life was bound up in there. Agenda 21, the United Nations Master Plan for Humanity, was enacted in the year 2000. Today, it's more commonly referred to as Agenda 2030, as in the year 2030. Through this policy, the United Nations has established 17 sustainable development goals, things like ending poverty and gender equality. These 17 SDGs are then broken into 169 individual targets, all to be reached by every nation on Earth by the year 2030. Can it be done? Likely not. But it's good to have goals, right? There is absolutely no way for these sustainable development goals to be implemented, to be tracked, to be monitored without the total obliteration of individual freedom. Some of the goals sound nice, ending hunger. Who could possibly be against ending hunger? Right? The problem is when you set a nebulous goal like that, it requires total power from the state to be able to accomplish that. And of course, they will never accomplish that, right? There's no way to literally eradicate all poverty from the face of the earth, but it gives government and global institutions like the UN an easy excuse to basically do whatever they want under the guise of meeting these goals. It's true. How can government possibly reach all of these sustainable development goals without micromanaging every aspect of our lives? And obviously that includes food production. And since food is produced literally everywhere in the world, well, the only way to cover the story is to travel the world and to speak with the farmers who are being hit hardest by this agenda. They're collapsing the current order in order to compose their new order. Look at the Netherlands, their prime minister, allows his country under court order to go with this new WEF net zero agenda of stopping modern agriculture. Netherlands is the biggest exporter of meat in Europe. They're shutting down, not the big corporate farms, they're shutting down the small and middle-sized family-run farms. We have about 120 acres mm. of land. We probably uh, uh, built corn on it for the for the pigs, because we have uh, uh, pigs at our home. Mm. How long has this farm been in your family for? From 1930. So that's like three, four generations? Yeah, I'm the fourth generation, yes. You heard uh, the pigs? We feed them three times a day. This is the time they get getting food. I think we're the last generation. If it go on the way it goes now, yeah. there's not a lot of future for the, for the farm. I don't think we can trust the government anymore because they want the land. And in Holland, there are a lot of farmers who already have stopped. Stopped what? Farming? Farming. So these are all farmers? No, maybe no, not this not one. No, there's not a farm anymore. But here is a farm, right? This no, is a... no, there's also not a farm anymore. So all these people shut down because of the government policies? Yeah. How many farms do you think will shut down in the next few years? the government does what they're the planning to do? I think 50% is go away. Wow, really? 50%? If Martin is right, and Holland stands to lose 50% of its farmers, then something is seriously wrong. This is a country that ranks first in the European Union in agricultural exports, producing large surpluses for the food and processing industry every year. So 
Why does the Dutch government want to eliminate half of its farmers? About a year ago, politicians were already discussing possible global food shortages. And yet, shockingly to a lot of people, the Dutch government floated this idea that would essentially wipe out 30 to 50 percent of the farmers here in this country. Yes. How, how could that happen? So the Netherlands has been a very agricultural country for decades, for centuries even. Mm -hmm. And in the 1990s, the Dutch government made an agreement with the European Union saying that we would have a certain percentage of hay, clover and moss on our countryside. And then, of course, in the past 20 years, we had a great growth of our farming sector, which, as a consequence, mean that we emit more nitrogen oxide. And nitrogen oxide is a fertilizer. It's a natural fertilizer, which causes the countryside to change. And what Dutch politicians have then done, they've spinned this as bad for nature and bad for the environment. Mm -hmm. But it's not bad for nature or bad for the environment, it's simply that it changes a little bit. We get a little bit more trees and a little bit less clover and hay. So basically there was a choice for Dutch politicians. They could have said, look, European Union, we're really sorry, but we're not going to live with these absurd standards from the 1990s anymore. That was option A. Option B was to disown and expropriate 50% of our farmers. And that's what they've chosen. In 2021, the European Union's Natura 2000 network released a map of areas in the Netherlands that are now protected against nitrogen emissions. Any Dutch farmer who operates their farm within five kilometers of a Natura 2000 protected area would now need to severely curtail their nitrogen output, which in turn would limit their production. The nitrogen problem is something they made up. It's one big lie. The nitrogen has nothing to do with environmental. It's just um, getting rid of the farmers. Do you guys drink the raw milk? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. You think raw milk is fine? Yeah. Do you see my son? Yeah. Right yeah. Oh, I gave him raw milk. What's happening to the farmers here locally? Are a lot of them selling shop? No, at the moment you can't even sell it because it's it, because of the regulations. Your the properties are kind of worthless. Mm. Another farmer can't buy our land mm. because he's not allowed to be a farmer there as well. Mm. So if you can't sell your property, then it's worthless. Yeah. And I think the government can take it just without buying it. They don't even have to buy it. They yeah. just take it. And like, what, what, what do you think they would do with it? Do you think they would develop it into apartments or...? Yeah, they say they need a lot of land for building houses. Mm -hmm. We have so many immigrants coming over here at the moment. And they say, yeah, we need houses for them. So that's why we need your land. It looks like they want to make Holland one big city. One problem I see is that in the countryside, a lot of upside down Dutch flags, a lot of the red handkerchiefs flying, yeah. you know, in solidarity with the farmers. Yeah. But when you go into the big cities, we talk yeah. to people, young people don't even know what's going on. No. So it might be that like only when the store shelves are empty, yeah. they finally realize like, oh, what, yeah. what's going on? Exactly. Right? Then it's too late. Then it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it is happening. We have here a farm with milking cows and chickens. About uh, 200 cows and uh, 50,000 hens for the years. How are the nitrogen policies going to affect your farm? According to the map, we have to uh, reduce half. Half? Half. Would you be able to do that? I don't know. 
I think we uh, might have to shut down one barn. What are these uh, silos here? What are these? There's feed. A feed, wow. Three kinds of feed for the small ones, the middle ones, and the bigger ones. Do you think if the nitrogen policy goes into effect, the price of the feed is going to go higher? This last year, the price is 60-70% uh, higher. 30 to 40 euro more per pig. So based on that Natura 2000 map that the government released, yes. how much will you have to cut? So far this region is uh, minus 12%, 12% uh, less cows. This is going too far, this is throwing farmers out of business. Can you tell me about your farm, like how many cows do you have and uh, how long has it been in your family for? Uh, for as long as I know, I'm the sixth generation of farmer. And how many cows do you have? I have 58 cows now. Wow. I know them all. We've been very good for them. If I hear screaming, in, uh, I wake up and I, uh, <laughs> I go to the barn in my underwear. Mm -hmm. That's how it goes. It's, it's, it, it's not a job, it's 24-7. Mm -hmm. When they want me to stop being a farmer, they have to beat me to death probably. So. I'll go somewhere else and be a farmer. Before we started filming, you were telling me about the government has a new nitrogen proposal. Yep. So what would, what would happen to your farm if that goes into effect? Uh, the area where I'm in uh, has to reduce 90 to 95%. 90 to 95%? Yeah. So what does that mean? How many cows are you going to have left? Six. Six <laughs> Easy cows. counting. You cannot make a proper living with six milking cows. So this is this is what this is about. You said fifty-eight cows, or yeah. and so and so again. If if the nitrogen rules go into effect, ninety-five percent of these cows you have to get rid of. Yeah, uh, ninety or ninety-five. <laughs> they want me to produce less nitrogen. Where are the plants that they want to protect? Is it just this grass? Now in the back there is the dunes. They're on the coastline, yeah. that's the Natura 2000 area. What on the dunes are they trying to protect? There are some plants that can't handle the nitrogen. Mm -hmm. So if, if it has too much nitrogen, this plant just dies or yeah. what happens? It doesn't grow. It I doesn't. don't know how it works exactly. <laughs> right. so, so again, to protect this right here, your farm has to cut 95% of its nitrogen. Yeah. But it's also a balance, right? Because like, yeah, if you want to eliminate all farming and all humans and all everything, sure, everything will grow naturally then you don't have any food. So it's like the solution, actually, it sounds good on paper. It sounds good in, in government, but in practical terms, it doesn't, it doesn't have the good effect. That's, a, that's the biggest problem. They make up a lot of things, but they don't know how it works. Uh, I think it's a scam. Well, it's a scam that'll get them your land. It's clear that these strict Dutch nitrogen policies are crippling the farmers who have been feeding this country for decades. But do the benefits of protecting these nitrogen-averse plants outweigh the costs that these farmers are paying? Hi, Petra. This is Roman. I'm a reporter here in the Netherlands from America. We reached out to the Department of Agriculture to get their side of the story, but unfortunately, they were not available. So instead, we turned to a nitrogen expert who was tasked with analyzing the government's own nitrogen model. You were working for the government uh, committee, committee to, yes. to study the nitrogen. Yes. You were given a model. 
Yes. The whole policy is based on the deposition model about how to deal with nitrogen emissions on nature areas. And I looked at the validation studies and showed that the model is actually crap. It doesn't work. And it doesn't matter, they still continue using it, which is, in a sense, unsettling. I mean, really, can we do such a thing in terms of policy? Use a model which doesn't work? It's never about innovation. It's always about uh, getting rid of farmers. When you look at it from a global level, if let's say consumption here in the Netherlands and worldwide for things like beef and dairy products don't go down, sure, you might lower your farming, yeah, yeah. but that farming is going to happen somewhere else. It's a classical trade-off. If you don't do it here, you do it somewhere else. I mean, nitrogen emissions are part of the equation of agriculture. So you want to optimize that. And guess what? The Netherlands is pretty good at optimizing agriculture. We've done this for the past thousand years. We're really good at it. So if you would actually shift um, production to somewhere else, you are absolutely sure that uh, emissions will increase. So ironically, it's almost like if you, if you globally want to reduce emissions, you should have more agriculture here in the Netherlands. Absolutely. It's the epitome of a dumb idea to scrap agriculture here because it has to be maintained somewhere else or increased somewhere else. So we're a bit of a bind in the Netherlands with respect to nitrogen policies. So if this isn't about nitrogen, what is it about? I've always said that the nitrogen crisis is, first of all, a made-up crisis. It's manufactured. And the only solution that is ever being proposed is forced expropriation. Mm -hmm. So it is the government that will take hold of their land. What do you think some of the reasons are for the government trying to take the land from the farmers? We have a housing crisis in the Netherlands. As you know, this is a very tiny country. We have a lot of people and we have a growing population because of immigration. And we need places to house those immigrants. And I think that that's partly why the government wants that land. Mm -hmm. They need houses and they need to build houses, which is funny because apparently building houses is also what emits nitrogen. Mm -hmm but that's not the people they're coming after. They're coming specifically after the farmers because they want the land. So that is the ultimate goal. What Eva is saying makes a lot of sense. As the world gets more populated, land obviously becomes more valuable. And thus, he who has the land has the power. In America, government support for Agenda 2030 is strong. But this country was founded by farmers, and land ownership is the key ingredient which protects the American people from government rule. What did the Founding Fathers envision property rights to look like in America? The concept in America is self-rule, that we the people will rule our government. And our Founding Fathers understood that the small landholder is the most important part of the state. The idea was that the land would be distributed among the people so they could always control their government. California has developed a 30 by 30 plan. Mm -hmm. They're pushing 30 by 30 in the state. And this is their map of protected areas. I'm here today to advance an effort to preserve and protect uh, over 30% of the state's lands. On October 7th of 2020, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed an executive order which made California the first state in the nation to commit to a 30 by 30 goal. It was a pledge to put 30% of the land and water in the state under government control by the year 2030. 30 by 30. 
by 2030 is the mandate. The ultimate agenda is that there is no ownership of land, mm -hmm. so that we don't own anything. We either own property or we are property. That's really what we're fighting from the global governance perspective. They have to eliminate our ability to control our government, which means they have to take our land. Is Agenda 2030, is it something that's on the books in the U.S.? I, I would look at Agenda 2030 as kind of being a template or a blueprint. Uh, there is no specific law that says this is Agenda 2030, we're going to put it and codify it in law. What they do is they look at what laws currently exist. The Clean Water Act was passed in 1972. The Endangered Species Act was passed in 1973. Let's use these laws and tweak them in order to achieve the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. A lot of this came about in the early 70s, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, which were good things, you know, the, the uh, Endangered Species Act, but it's been abused from what the original intent. Congress did not intend for it to be uh, abused the way it is and manipulated the way it is these days when they wrote those bills. They would have never passed them. Species Act, how that's used to take land. Can you sort of uh, explain that a bit more? What you'll find with the Endangered Species Act is that in order to protect a species, sometimes you have to protect habitat. That's land. So in many cases, you'll see environmentalists employ the Endangered Species Act to close off development. Copco and Iron Gate are the only two deep water lakes in the climate system. But the environmentalist movement created the crisis for saving the coho salmon, which were never known to be indigenous to the upper region, to force the elimination of the dams or destruction of them. What you're saying is, in this region, the coho salmon is not really indigenous. Is that the case? Coho salmon, by fishing and game's own definition, is a coastal fish. Its normal habitat extends no farther than 30 miles from the coast. The Iron Gate Dam is one of four dams being removed by the state of California to save the coho salmon. But if what Rex says is true, and the coho never swam here, then why destroy the dams? It's a question that's been irking local farmers and ranchers who depend on these dams for their livelihoods. Throughout my entire childhood, my parents had several different jobs. Uh, because they didn't inherit this place, they worked hard to have it. How many years have they owned this plot of land? Forty years. We love this land, but given this global agenda that you know, is, feels like it's in our backyard now, I don't know if my sisters and I will be able to uh, inherit this place and and pass on and 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 keep what my parents have worked so hard for. If and when those dams are destroyed, it will shut off the water that we have rights to. It's going to totally impact our livelihood. I think it's criminal. What the State Water Resources Board is telling us is that 
they want to see the coho in this river. But there is no historical evidence of the coho ever being here. They're using a picture of fish that look like salmon. And that's their only best available science that coho existed here. Todd, could you please uh, introduce yourself and sort of your background as it relates to uh, the waterways and dams specifically? My name is Todd Myers. I'm the environmental director at the Washington Policy Center in Washington State. Um, I have worked on salmon recovery issues for more than a decade and environmental policy for more than two decades. I actually personally have voted to uh, fund removal of part of a dam to open salmon habitat. Um, so I've looked at this from all sides of the issue. The dam removal project that's happening right now on the on the Klamath is would be the world's biggest, right? And it's actually set to start either this year or next year. From your experience in, in salmon recovery, is there a way to achieve the goal of helping the coho salmon to recover without tearing out those dams? Yeah, removing dams is not a panacea. There are lots of other things that influence salmon populations. Here in Washington State, a decade ago, we removed two dams on the Elwha River, and it was claimed that the populations would recover and that we would be fishing again by now. Um, and in fact, the populations uh, over the last decade have basically been the same as what they were the decade before the dams were removed. That's because there's lots of other factors that play into salmon recoveries. And I think too often people become fixated on sort of the romance of destroying dams and that that becomes the overriding interest where other projects that might do much more for the environment never even get assessed um, because we become so fixated on one approach. What lends to that? What, what lends to people just wanting to tear down dams and not listening to, for instance, your your take on it, your opinion that there are so many different options that can be done uh, that wouldn't be so extreme. I think this is a problem fundamentally when you make environmental policy more about politics than results. These dams are coming down and it's about damn time. The benefits to politicians and to environmental activists are sort of like identity politics. They see themselves as environmentalists, and so they want to express that in very, you know, big ways. Essentially virtue signaling, right? The largest dam removal project in U.S. history. Tearing down dams is very dramatic. The more dramatic, the better. But if something doesn't work down the road, right, the Elwha, it's been a decade, we're not seeing the salmon recovery that we expected. And so as a result, we probably should have done something different. Well, is anybody held accountable, right? All the people who promised that we would see salmon recovering, that we would see, you know, harvestable levels of salmon. Has anybody been held accountable for screwing up? No. In addition to dam removals, the state of California has also enacted emergency drought regulations threatening to prohibit ranchers from using their own groundwater. My husband and I bought a little ranch when we got married seven years ago, and we run cows on that ranch. We're in a real pinch right now as uh, cattle producers in Scott Valley, where as of last September, the state water board has in introduced some new emergency drought regulations that 
are threatening to curtail 100% of our irrigation water that we pump out of the ground. This is all being done in the name of saving the coho salmon. If this continues down, down the path that's going, what do you think will happen to your farm? My property right now doesn't have a lot of value without, without the water rights that go with it. Water is what makes everything work. In, in Scott Valley, you, don't, you can't do anything without water. And so we would have to move because if we can't ranch in Scott Valley, there's nothing else to do. It seems like the salmon are, are, are not technically endangered anywhere. You can find them in stores, you can, you can yeah. eat them. Yet they're invoking the Endangered Species Act to essentially take away your water rights. Do, do you feel like the salmon is the, the, the real reason or is there something going on oh, behind no. the scenes? It's definitely not about the salmon. It's about control of water. It has nothing to do for, about fish. This is all about rewilding, regardless of the impacts. This is a consortium between uh, Department of Water Resources and California Fish and Game. Uh, they are moving to secure all of the uh, control of all the water as we speak in the state of California, now including groundwater. Water is the thing. Water is a thing that these globalists are gonna to use to control everything because we all can't live without water. Yeah, they have the 17 sustainable development goals. Water is one of them, but every goal has a bunch of sub-targets, right? right? And in order to achieve them, you do have to essentially micromanage people's lives in order to measure their water usage, et cetera. Right, it's in the targets that they get more specific. So if you need permission to flush the toilet or brush your teeth or drink a glass of water, you're beholden to their control. What's a great threat to the United States is a bi-coastal elite that has grown up in 50 years of luxury and affluence, and they're completely unaware of the source of their wealth. They don't know that the consequences of their ideology will make less energy, less food. They feel that they do not want to have oil-based nitrogen fertilizers or pesticides, and they don't need to be intensively farmed for great production. Sri Lanka's doing it now. They're, they're banning chemical or synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. They used to have double the GDP per person, per capita income of India. Now they're starving. Is this really what happens to a country when these policies are enacted? Can implementing Agenda 2030 really lead to the collapse of an entire nation? Sri Lanka is located in South Asia, just off the southern coast of India. The Sri Lankan countryside is made up of collective villages filled with small subsistence farmers with unique challenges. Like for instance, having to climb up into tree houses to sing the ancient songs of their ancestors to keep elephants from rampaging their crops. But to be honest, in terms of threats, Elephants pale in comparison to a government that is pushing forward Agenda 2030 with a strict agricultural mandate which is now threatening to destroy the lives of the farmers who have been the backbone of the Sri Lankan economy for decades. 
rice is our main staple. And in 1950s, early 1950s, we have been importing 60% of our rice requirement from other countries. So, so then moving forward from 1952 all the way up to 2020, a lot has changed, right? Lots of changes. Our farmers started using synthetic fertilizer in 1952, and that helped us to achieve a very high yield. And starting from 2008, we have been producing more rice than we can consume. In other words, there was a surplus. That was a leap jump forward. Imagine that through sheer ingenuity, hard work, perseverance, and scientific discipline, the Sri Lankan people developed a paddy rice crop that was among the highest yielding in the entire world, allowing them to not only feed their own people, but also to export the crop to surrounding countries, making some much-needed money for the national treasury in the process. But this path to prosperity, as well as the food security of the whole country, was inextricably linked to the use of nitrogen-based fertilizer. More than 90% of the farmers are using synthetic fertilizer. Let me let you know why fertilizer is required. If you want to get 5 metric tons of rice, the paddy plant requires about 105 kilograms of nitrogen. Mm -hmm. If you don't put those nutrients into the soil, the soil becomes infertile. You need the fertilizer to make sure the required amount of nitrogen can be supplied to the plant. Mm -hmm. If not, you will not get the yield. Here's a fun fact. This country is actually not called Sri Lanka. This country is officially called the Democratic Socialist Republic of Sri Lanka. And as an openly socialist republic, the government and the president who is in charge of the government can make sweeping changes to the entire country on a whim, which is exactly what happened. The government of Sri Lanka banned the import of artificial fertilizers, pesticides, and weedicides. Overnight, the Sri Lankan president, Mr. Gadabaya Rajapaksa, banned the use and import of chemical fertilizers. The entire Sri Lankan rice paddy crop had been bred for six decades to work symbiotically with chemical fertilizers. And so taking away the fertilizers without any sort of a transition process was like taking out two legs from underneath the table. The result was obvious. Sri Lanka has officially defaulted on its foreign debt. The country's worst ever economic crisis since independence. The country today announced that it is defaulting on its debt worth $51 billion. Protesters holding President Gotabaya Rajapaksha responsible for the nation's economic meltdown. Motorists, tuk-tuk drivers and taxi drivers queue for fuel in this queue that I hear is stretching four to five kilometers. This is a scene that is now synonymous with the worst economic crisis in this country in decades. How did it happen that the president just, like, like this, just banned, banned <laughs> fertilizer? It's a good question. Uh, some NGOs, some are crazy for the natural environment. They have convinced the president uh, you can do 100% organic. And apparently he believed it. Mm. I realized this is going to be a huge problem with irreversible damage. We uh, waited for the queue, mm -hmm. very big queue. Sometimes two days, three days I wait, uh, waiting for the fuel. You would wait for yeah. fuel for two days? Yeah, yeah, it's a queue. You would, you would sleep in your car waiting for yes, fuel? Yes, 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 a very bad situation. Before one liter price is 138 rupees, now 
1 liter 540 food agriculture items chemicals everything everything is the prices increase people are going to extra work so you mean like one person would get two jobs part jobs is a very bad situation in sri lanka a very bad situation to say the least in a couple of short months sri lanka went from a robust agricultural economy with a food surplus to a massive economic crisis that resulted in food and fuel shortages and rising inflation that forced its citizens to work up to five different jobs to make ends meet. All because of one new law, unilaterally enacted by its president. And the more we spoke with the people of Sri Lanka, the more dire the situation seemed. Overnight, they decided to go with a different organic fertilizer. Overnight. How bad did it get? What kind of shortages did you guys have? Our crops suffered. A lot of us were struggling without basic things in the supermarkets because the farmers weren't producing anything. How long have you guys been farming here? 50 years. 50 years right here in this land? Yes. What kind of vegetables? Red radish, cabbage, leeks, carrot. When the president said no more chemicals, what happened to your farm? My economy fell down 50%. Your personal economic situation fell by 50%. Before we got 10,000 kilo. Now, 4,000, 3,000. Of, of vegetables. So you went from 10,000 to 4,000. Normally, we can fill up five boxes, around 5,000 kilograms of fresh tea. So you're saying before, not, it was not only this, no. like all this would be full. All this would be full. That's rough. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a huge difference. If you have a bank loan, you can do you think the government cares about farmers like you? <laughs> the difference in vegetable production between synthetic and organic became obvious when we visited one farmer who was still practicing both methods. This field is 100% organic. Why, why only this small plot is organic? Why is not everything organic? When you compare the other crop and organic one, it's yield is little bit poor. The yield is poor. Yield is poor. Yeah. So we can't make a good profit. So organic is more expensive, more expensive. it's more labor, yeah, yeah. and it's less yield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Everywhere we went, it was the same story. The farmers themselves know that the only hope they have is to organize and tell their story to the world. So they asked us to sit down with them for a meeting. And what we learned was tragic. Is a lot of that happening? A lot of farmers committing suicide? Suicide. Independent farmers in Sri Lanka are taking their own lives as a direct result of Agenda 2030. And for what? 
what is so threatening about synthetic fertilizers that's more important than these farmers' livelihoods, and in some cases, their lives? Climate change is the biggest threat. The biggest threat to any kind of biodiversity, the biggest threat to any kind of nature, of course also the biggest threat for the human beings. What do we want? At some point down the line, the narrative changed to be around climate. What was the narrative prior to that? What was the justification they were giving in order to push you know, this kind of more control from the top down? Yeah, immediately preceding climate and environment, actually the Cold War was the pretext for having this incredibly large, incredibly powerful federal government. In fact, you see a very clear break when the Club of Rome met in 1991 as the uh, Soviet state and, and the Eastern European communist states were collapsing. Uh, the Club of Rome, very, very powerful elitists. Obviously, Mikhail Gorbachev was there. Uh, you had many prominent Americans, people like Al Gore. Uh, they got together and they came up with this incredible document where they actually said, we need a new justification for this all-powerful state. So the new excuse is going to be because the environment is going to be harmed and because climate is going to hurt us. Wait, what? I could not believe what I just heard. Did world leaders really lay out this globalist plan in plain English in a physical book way back in 1991? I went on Amazon, and there it was. The first global revolution, which states, and I quote, In searching for a common enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. And therefore, the real enemy is humanity itself. The science is clear. We are getting dangerously close to the point of no return. The science is very clear. This natural world is severely endangered. Code red for humanity. It's not a group of political officials, elected officials. These are the scientists. There is a top-down quality to this policy, which is extremely forceful. And the forcefulness comes from scientism, which is the ideology that we understand the world fully because of science. We have to listen to the science so that we have a better future for tomorrow. This is just ideological BS. And it's also quite dangerous. It's a dangerous way of looking at the world because then it means nothing matters apart from science. Culture doesn't matter, history doesn't matter, religion doesn't matter, social interaction doesn't matter, nothing matters but science. You don't need to be a theologian or philosopher to understand that that's complete nonsense, but also dangerous nonsense. If nothing matters than just science, then what kind of a world do we actually live in? History is truly at a turning point. In times of crisis, the role of governments is more important and more relevant than ever. The World Economic Forum was actually a, a critical part of implementing this UN agenda. Some years ago, they became a strategic partner of the UN in the implementation of Agenda 2030. 
And then you start looking at the connections between the World Economic Forum and China. Klaus Schwab and Xi Jinping, they're like old buddies. They put out press releases about how much they love each other. So you've got the super capitalists represented by the World Economic Forum. And then on the government side, you have communists. Right? After Agenda 2030 was adopted, the Communist Party in China put out through all their propaganda organs, they said, we played a critical role in this Agenda 2030. You had Javier Solana, the head of NATO, saying this was going to be the next great leap forward. Right? The last great leap forward in China killed millions of people. Why would we want another one of those? That's crazy. So you have communists and super capitalists all coming together and working on this one sustainable development agenda. And uh, that should make us all pause and, and say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense on the surface. What's going on here? China is a powerful example of what can be achieved when national governments make environmental of protection a top priority. The motivations of those who are pushing this agenda, many of them tend to emulate countries like China, which have abysmal environmental records. This is a country that has massive pollution problems. They don't seem to care about rivers and lakes and streams. There's all sorts of toxins pouring into them. In actuality, I would say their envy of China is more to do with their control over their population and control over politics than it has to do with the environment. In looking at this, it looks like the environment's a tool to achieve power more than it is an end goal of itself to actually protect nature. It's about climate. It's about protecting native plants, human health, indigenous species. It's about clean water. I still don't know what this is really all about. But there's no doubt that there's a real attack on farmers happening on every corner of this planet, which logically poses one very obvious question. If you get rid of the farmers, you still need to eat something, especially yeah. protein, right? Maybe they don't want um, the food production like it is uh, right now. I mean, um, we, we produce uh, potatoes and we produce uh, milk and we produce uh, meat. And um, maybe there's a government who doesn't want us to eat any more that kind of food. Mm. That's and instead turn to what? Well, insects, <laughs> bugs, I don't know. Uh. There are um, these new projects uh, where, uh, where insects are grown. The people who are getting kicked off the land, are they, like some of them, talking about moving to insect farming? No, no. no. I don't know any farmer who now works with cows, who wants to be an insect farmer? Absolutely not. Yeah. It's like a nightmare uh, thing. <laughs> Even as a consumer, I think. Yeah. I don't want to eat insects. Yeah, no. I don't know if they're good for me. Yeah, me neither. But in case you haven't heard, insect farming is now a thing. And even Iron Man is on board. This looks like I could make cocoa with this. What is... Uh, that's an insect-based premium protein. It's made from Molitor, which is mealworm larvae. Uh, the company is called Insect. Just been approved by the EU for human consumption. And like Ninki mentioned, the insect craze is catching on here in the Netherlands as well. What are you sort of seeing right now in the Netherlands? Are you seeing a lot of uh, farmers moving towards insects? That would be a fantastic scenario, but at this stage, that's not yet the case. Hey, I had a, a question. I, I'm in Amsterdam right now, and I was talking to a, 
a company here called Bugs. They said that you do uh, cricket catering and stuff like that. Yeah, so we produce meatballs, burgers, shawarma, that sort of stuff from insects. And we sell to restaurants with eight restaurants currently that have our products. Hmm. And then we supply to catering companies. Hey, um, I was speaking to a company in Rotterdam and they told me that you actually uh, farm insects. Yes. Do you think more farmers are going to start to go down the same road? Maybe, but um, in Europe it's quite difficult to change the consumers to insects. Mm. No, it's not going that fast as we expected when we started. Would it be possible for me to come by? Because I'd love to see like what, what an actual farm like that looks like. DistroBugs is an insect food producer, owned and operated by Yurt Coopers, who promises that DistroBugs is doing everything they can to remove any ignorance and resistance to bug eating. These right here are the mealworms, right? Yes. Obviously. And then these right here are the crickets. Yes. Wow. How many farms in the Netherlands currently uh, farm insects? I think, I think about uh, 20 mealworm farms and crickets, I think about um, eight, nine at mm. the moment. Oh, so it's not that many. It's no, it's not that many. No, 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 no. Do you think there'll be more farmers switching over to farming insects rather than farming you know, beef or cattle or sheep? Yes, I think there will be a lot of new uh, farms who will produce uh, um, mealworms and crickets. Mm -hmm. So you feel like this is a kind of a growing industry? Yes, it's a growing industry. The insects will come inside after that door. We, we cook them in this kettle here. Oh, it's... At the moment we can process about 500 kilograms. Yeah, really? Yes. That's significant. Uh, yes. Yeah. But it has to be more. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It tastes just like sunflower chips. Yes. We can put insects in all products. We make meatballs, burgers, sausage rolls, and pasta, bread, mm -hmm. and smoothies, and shakes, etc. So this right here is sort of the future of food. Yes, this is future of food. Mm. So let's say somebody watching this is uh, against the idea of eating bugs like, or insects. What, what would you tell them? Everybody has to make their own choices to eat it, uh, yes or no. At the moment on Twitter, you can see some uh, news about it. You can you get cancer from mealworms, you get cancer from insects, uh, and nobody knows. So I hope we can push a lot of uh, products into the market. But it's a push market, so we have to push it. Today, the European Commission has officially declared mealworms to be food. It could be a game changer for insect farmers. They're now hoping to grow their businesses and turn insects into another source of protein for Europeans, even if just a niche one. There's this top-down globalist idea that certain Western countries have diets that they do not approve of. In other words, they're more meat-based and they feel that humans don't need meat-based protein. And they want to either force people to follow their paradigms or they want to buy or accumulate farmland and that's how they're going to farm it. It's sort of like the Soviet Union or Mao's cultural revolution. It's top down and it results in disasters. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization in 2013, and they put out this very bizarre report uh, and they said we need Westerners to start eating bugs. Right? And that wasn't on anybody's radar. We didn't eat bugs. That's disgusting. 
And so they said we need a massive propaganda campaign in the media to convince them that they're going to save the planet. Well, we're seeing that. NPR, uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, even Fox News, right? They've been peddling this idea that bugs are delicious and nutritious. Now you got all these celebrities eating bugs and teaching people that it's trendy and cool to eat bugs. And as we speak, they are right now building the largest insect protein processing facility on the planet outside Decatur, Illinois. They're building another one up in Canada. They know there's not really demand for bugs right now, right? How many Americans do you know that are clamoring for cricket sandwiches, right? Practically none. Uh, and so I expect that as these food shortages develop, as the price of staples goes through the roof, people will say, okay, I'm really hungry. My kids are really hungry. I can't afford a steak anymore. So, all right, I'll just, I'll eat your stupid crickets. Construction on the Klamath River Dam Removal Project is set to begin in a couple of weeks. Right now, teams are already on site. Construction prep work is underway. Some of the dams are scheduled to be removed in 2024, but the first one will be removed from the river in September. We live in fear. What are they going to do next to us here? When people go up the road, we wonder if, you know, they're sneaking on our property and trying to take pictures and we've had drones flying over trying to prove something, anything that we may be doing wrong on this river. And it's intimidating. If we're heading for a world food crisis as we hear all the time, then perhaps we should release the noose on the food providers. We don't farm and ranch with a big margin. We don't do it so that we make a bunch of money and can take the family on vacation. We do it because we love the lifestyle. We love raising our kids, learning to do something productive, providing people with something they really need. I just hope that it doesn't come to a point where we lose ranches in Scott Valley because I don't know what it would be without agriculture. What, what replaces our fields? It's, it's either going to be some kind of development, or I guess corporate farms. When you start to see people like Bill Gates gobble up farmland, and you read what his foundation says about farming, when they say that we're gonna have a particular type of agriculture, they want large blocks run by the government or by private consortia where they say we're not gonna have animal-based proteins, we're not going to have stockyards, we're not going to have turkey farms, we're not going to have chicken. The academic mind always has the answers, but never in the real world. And they do a lot of damage. Everywhere you look, small and medium-sized farms being gobbled up by these corporate mega farms because they can't keep up anymore. They can't comply with these endless streams of regulations that are coming down. We're seeing that in China now, where these giant mechanized corporate big government controlled mega farms are uh, displacing all these little small family farms that families have been farming for, for hundreds of years, in some cases longer. They're moving them all off their little plots of land and moving them into these big horrific mega cities that they have built. And we're gonna see that all over the world with the decimation of small farms. So if they're not bankrupted by economic forces, the government itself will shut them down. Everything is falling apart. Yeah, there is a shortage of food. Uh, many people uh, do not have enough money to eat every day. Everybody is out here today because they understand that when our government 
actually expropriates our farmers. You know, we're all next. Not just Holland is now facing these types of regulations, but you can see the attack on farmers all over the world. It's an agenda that is carried out on a global level that is being pushed through government officials in respective countries. This is uh, precisely how the globalists have managed to take over national parliaments and national governments. 20 countries equal 80% of all the emissions. You solve the problem to start with by making sure all of those 20 countries are doing what they need to do. We have to pull them to the table and leverage further. So how do we get there? Well, the lesson I've learned in the last year is money, 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 money. They're following a script where they are thinking already from the perspective of a global, bureaucratic, quasi-totalitarian system of governing, system of rule. This is an agenda, and all these countries are implementing the same policies. So they've targeted the farmers because that's the agenda. When the American nation was founded, 95% of the people were homestead citizens. They had their own land. And they were completely independent, autonomous. They raised their own food. They were outspoken. They were economically viable. Farming serves two purposes. It doesn't just produce food, but it produces citizens. John, can you give us an idea of how much it's costing you to operate your farm right now this year compared to the same time last year? Well, uh, right now things have uh, tripled as far as costs for my own farming operation and for many farmers across the country. And I think you're going to see across the board higher food prices. Food prices are already up dramatically this year, last year a little bit too. And we might see more empty shelves in America. Even the president is promising food shortages in, in his conversation. So there's no need for this to be happening. You mm -hmm. know, the people are the ones that are going to be hurt. You know, not just farmers, you know, trying to make a living. It's going to be the food supply of this country, which is a staple of our security of our nation, yeah. being able to grow the grain and the crops that we do, that not only supplies us, but our allies and other trading partners around the world. We have 8 billion people on the planet now, and that's sustainable if they allow agriculture to continue to be mechanized and genetically altered. And I don't think they understand that if they tamper with that, you're going to have people go hungry. We are headed into, I think, a time of very significant food shortages. Uh, can we expect to see massive increases in food prices next year? Oh, no question about it. So I think the end goal of the war on farmers that we're seeing, which is guided at every step by the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030, is going to be a total consolidation of agriculture, a total consolidation of the food supply, and uh, as every communist tyrant of the last hundred years has understood if you control the food, you control the people. I think that's ultimately the end goal. So what now? Do we fall in line with the UN, sacrifice our current diets, and instead turn to alternative sources of protein, like insects? Do we sacrifice our small, independent farmers and their livelihoods in favor of species that may or may not be endangered, or plants that can't be replaced by trees because of an agreement made between politicians last century? Do we strip all farmers, worldwide, 
of synthetic fertilizers that they say are essential to feed our population? If America was built to be governed by the people, then it should be the people who make these decisions, right? And if small businesses are failing and the middle class is shrinking while food prices skyrocket and grocery store shelves become bare, then perhaps it's time that we take a look at what's happening to our friends over in Asia and Europe and decide if their path is the right one to follow. There's a group of people that is thinking they're doing everything good for nature. And they are against farmers. And why? I don't know. Because they think we do everything wrong. Hello, how are you doing? Sadly, very, very sad in the neighborhood here. Are the six people who killed themselves because they don't see how it must go further. Mostly are cow farmers. Yeah, the government in Holland, they're crazy, they're fucking crazy. I hope that you can tell in your story about the anger and the that people don't know what to do and they finish with their own lives and everything. Yeah, you can tell them to the world. The reason that so many people are suddenly so interested in what's happening over in the Netherlands is because the policies being pushed there are very similar. They, in fact, quite literally mirror the policies being pushed here in America. I'm your host, Roman from the Epic Times. Stay informed, and most importantly, stay free. radically changed throughout the state, but not enough in places like Klamath and around the Colorado River Basin to call for the end of the drought in California.
hebben we Nienke Koopmans. Boer, 80 koeien. It's hard. I don't really know how to talk to this government anymore because they're not listening. It's not, it's not, uh, actually it's not a democracy anymore in Holland. That's what I feel like. That's what I'm in politics for. And as you now op één manier op een knieën wilt krijgen, als je je vrijheid af wilt nemen, dan pakken ze je je voedsel af. En daar zijn ze mee bezig. Do you see any hope? Do you see any hope for the situation? Yeah, sure, yes. No farmers, no food. Yeah. They will know it. So, yeah, yeah, we have to continue fighting for it. Mm. And, uh, yeah, we have the best job in the world. Thank you so much for watching this movie and going on this journey with us. To be honest with you, when we started this project, we didn't really know what to expect. We knew that there were problems with the food supply and that many farmers around the world were having a lot of problems, but we didn't know how bad the situation really was. And the farmers that we were able to feature in this documentary, as powerful as their stories were, each one of them represents a thousand, 10,000 other farmers whom we just weren't able to feature. But their stories are just as heartbreaking and just as bad. The people in America and Holland, they stand to lose their generational lands and their businesses, something they've had in their family for five, six generations will just be owned by the government. Whereas you have places like Sri Lanka where people are actually starving because of these government policies. And to be honest with you, one of the most heartbreaking things for me on this trip was that we would speak to these farmers and get their stories and it would just be so hard to listen to. But then we would head into the city and speak to the people there, especially the young people, and they had no idea what's going on. We would ask them about the nitrogen policies or the climate policies or, or some of these other water-related policies, and they not only did not know what was going on, but they naturally sided with the government. They naturally thought that, hey, putting these farmers out of business is just gonna be the cost of saving the planet. And when I heard that, to be honest with you, it really felt like the weaponization of compassion. These globalist institutions, they take advantage of people's wish and desire to be good and to help people, and they use it for their agenda, to push forward their agenda, whatever that agenda happens to be. And so that to me was the absolute most heartbreaking part of it all. But to be frank with you, at the very least, we were able to make this project and have these farmers, well, speak to the entire world through this documentary. So I thank you so much for watching. Um, if you can, share it with as many people as you possibly can. We actually set up a special page. You can either scan that QR code or head on over to that website that you're seeing up on your screen right now. And through that webpage, you can share this documentary with your friends, your family, your colleagues, your neighbors, your community, even your enemies, so that they can really know what's going on because this is the only way that the next great leap forward won't be a global famine and disaster that'll claim the lives of millions of people. Because, listen, what happened in China with the Great Leap Forward, well, those policies sounded great on paper. Nobody was convinced that, hey, we should do the Great Leap Forward and kill 50 million people, but that's what happened. And unfortunately, having dug into this agenda ourselves, that might be what'll happen here, where these policies, they sound so good, they sound so righteous and noble and compassionate, but the end result is that there'll be a global famine. And I hate to say it, but there are forces in this world that actually think that might be a good idea. What better way to return to nature if there's less people? 
So please head on over to that website, share this documentary with your friends, your family again. And on that website, there's two options. You can just share it with them or you can actually pay it forward. You can get them a subscription, just put in their email. They'll be pleasantly surprised, I'm sure, when they get a, an email link to the Epic TV documentary. And yeah, just please share it out with as many possible people as you can because this information needs to be seen by everyone across the entire world. Thank you.